First Samuel chapter 16. <coughs> Proverbs chapter 17, verse 3. You don't have to turn there. It's just a verse. You'll hear it. It says, as the, uh, as the refining pot is to silver and the furnace is to gold, uh, so the Lord tries the hearts. Um, and basically, you have a comparison there between a natural process and a spiritual process. And the natural process is the purification of precious metals, be it silver or be it gold. And the spiritual is the heart of a man. <clears throat> and the process for the refining or the purifying of precious metals is heat. Um, the silver, the gold, is placed into a pot or into a furnace. And it is heated to temperatures that cause the elements to um, change their physical properties. They change from solid to liquid. Um, and, in, and in that process, the, the heat will prove the value of the metal. And so the higher the temperature, uh, only that which is the purest will endure. It will come to a molten state, but anything that is not silver, that is not precious, uh, won't stand the heat and it will burn off or it will separate from, from the one uh, other substance so that it can then be removed. That's the physical process. Now, the spiritual, the Bible tells us, is very similar in, in the way that it works. The heat um, is turned up in our lives. God having a hand on the thermostat, uh, knowing what the temperature is set at, and then having a hand on the thermometer, knowing exactly what he's doing, monitoring it in our lives. And so he'll bring pressures, he'll bring trials, he'll bring circumstances. Uh, internally, externally, whether we see what they are, understand them or not, he's in control of those things. And he knows how uh, to do it in a way that it's effective. Um, and so the temperature is turned up and we feel it. We feel the pain of it. We feel the pressure, uh, the, the discomfort. We feel things breaking down, where, whereas, whereas things were held together by a certain status quo, uh, the trials, the, the pain of it has a way of um, causing us to let go, cause, but not by choice because we can't touch it anymore and things begin to melt. They fall apart and we panic because structure is breaking down. Um, God in his wisdom is using those things in our lives uh, to purify and refine what's on the inside. And so his objective is to separate that which is valuable from that which is worthless and also then to take the things that are valuable and make them worth more, you know, to, to purify and refine and bring forth something that's more precious. And that's, that's his will. That's how he works within our lives. So as the furnace and the f refining pot is the silver and gold, so God tries the hearts because he wants to separate unvaluables and he wants to purify and refine the things that are. So as we come now to the part of Samuel where we finally meet David, we're going to find a young man that already has the evidence of God having worked in his life. We don't meet him from his birth like we do with some Bible characters, like with Samson or <clears throat> Moses or others. We find him as a young man. Um, and we, we join his life already kind of in progress. But what we see in the very early stages of his unveiling in Scripture is we see that God uh, has already been at work within his life. There's already th some substance there, something that's beyond 
And what's going to happen to David over the course of the first 15 years of his scriptural um, testimony is that God is going to put him through a furnace. There is going to be a crucible uh, that takes place within his life wherein the things that are unvaluable are broken away and the things which are are refined and that God is going to add to him. And uh, in it, we, we have a priceless example of the work that God does in the life of a man. This is what God wants to do in uh, every life. And any life that will be fruitful for him uh, will endure this process. Uh, we, we don't have to. I mean, there are certain things that are um, requirements. God brings us into the furnace whether we like it or not. But there are certain things that are electives that we choose. And uh, we can either say, God, please continue in my life. Please continue refining. Please continue shaping. Or we can say to him, we never say this with words. We say it with our heart. Is I know, <laughs> I don't want any more. Shut it off, you know, uh, to our own detriment. You know, whatever God wants to do in our lives is always for our good. And so what we see is that God has a special calling on this young man's life. And what it will cost him in order to see that calling realized and then to to uh, survive it is is great, you know, and it's a worthy um, look as we look into it. And so we see the call of David. Now, um, <clears throat> if you would, if you'd look with me at just the last verse of chapter 15, chapter 35, I'm sorry, chapter 15, verse 35, it says that Samuel, who is the prophet, he is the stability of the nation in this time of transition. It says that Samuel came no more to see Saul, Saul who is the kingmaker, <laughs> the one who God will use to prepare David, uh, he came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. And so thus far, as we've looked at the, the stage being set for the coming of King David, we've seen that God has uh, essentially done the three things that he set out to do. He has uh, raised up a prophet, the person of Samuel. Uh, he has also brought forth the death of a system, the old uh, system in the judges. Eli and his sons have died. Uh, the ark has been taken away. It's been since brought back and shifted around and all kinds of uh, crazy things. But there's just obviously a time of transition, and, and everybody in the nation knows it. Uh, their, their eyes are all set on Samuel, from Dan to Beersheba. The entire nation is wondering what is next. And now God has raised up Saul, who is uh, purposely brought forth by God um, for the purpose of, of shaping David. And we see that there in the, in the last phrase of, of verse 35 where it says that the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. And you ask the question and you say, what does it mean for God to repent? You know, because that it almost implies error, doesn't it? Like that God made a, made a decision and then he um, says, well, that was a bad decision. <laughs> you know? And I wish I didn't do that. That's what, when we say we repent, that's the, the mindset of it, is that I really wish I didn't do that. Uh, and yet we, we know that God is perfect um, and that he makes no mistakes. And if he were to make a mistake, then he would be less than God. Um, and it would make me extremely insecure <laughs> because I trust him that he's leading every part of my life. And, and if all of a sudden there was like this divine oops, you know, like, well, Nick, I thought that was going to be a good decision. Nah, let's back up on that. You know, that's never the case. Now, we do see God repenting a couple of times in the scripture. Um, but what it means, it doesn't mean uh, a, a repentance from sin. 
and that is, well, I've made an error, but rather it means a change of direction. And there are times that God divinely changes direction. And when I say divinely, I mean that he did it on purpose. He went a certain direction on purpose for a while, and then he changes directions on purpose. And he wants both outcomes to play a part in the final outcome of things. And so we see God with Abraham. He said, offer me your only son, Isaac, whom you love. That was God's direction. He set him out in a, in, a, in a way. And as Abraham raised the knife, God said, stop, change directions, turn around and look in the bushes. And there was a ram. And God said, don't kill a human, uh, kill, offer me that lamb. Now, it wasn't that God changed his mind. God changed uh, direction. He was painting a picture. He had a purpose in both things, but he moved a different way. Uh, we see that God with Moses Moses leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. They complained, they murmured, they whined, they cried, they rebelled over and over. And God says, it repents me that I have endured with this people. Let's wipe them out, Moses, and I'll start something new with you. Now, that was God, never God's intention. God's not saying, well, I made a big mistake by calling Israel. No, no, no. God didn't make a mistake for a, cent, for a thousand years in raising these people up. And not a thousand, but you get the idea. And then, uh, and then wants to change his mind. No, he was doing something. And, but there was a change of direction. Uh, we're going to see it later on in David's life, wherein God will, will do things like this. And the reason is because God wants to bring forth a certain thing, but then he wants to use that thing for something other than what you would initially think. So what's going on here when it says that God repented? God raised up Saul as a king, and he did that on purpose. He did it intentionally. But God's purpose in raising up Saul was not that his kingdom would last, but rather he raised him up to be the very instrument that would prepare and refine David uh, for the kingship that he would have. And what we see in Saul is that he is an absolute train wreck. His life has gone uh, so rogue uh, in terms of what God had initially intended it to be or, or wanted it to be or what Saul could have wanted it to be. And he is now a mental case. We're going to see that he is wrestling with demons. Uh, he is insane. He is jealous. He has no heart for God whatsoever. I mean, this man is just uh, gone off the deep end. And, and Samuel even cuts him off and says, I want nothing more to do with him until he dies. I, I've got no audience with him. I've got nothing to say to him. Now, the remarkable thing is that when we... Begin chapter 16. Saul has now been the king for 25 years. So this man who after two years was rejected by God uh, is going to reign for 40. And now we're 25 years into this thing. And uh, David is now born. He's a young man. And uh, we're going to see now the transition to David's life in verse 1. So chapter 16, verse 1. It says, And the Lord said unto Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, seeing that I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. And so Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. 
So Samuel knows full well the kind of a man that Saul has become. He is, his, his entire focus of his kingdom is preserving his own power, much like the politicians of today. And this is part of what happens, you know. And uh, so uh, he, if Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. And so the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I am come to sacrifice to the Lord and then call Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you will do and you will anoint unto me him whom I will name unto you. And so uh, Samuel is now sent to Bethlehem uh, with a horn of oil to Jesse's house uh, because one of his sons has been chosen to be king. And so uh, Saul, you know, I'm, not, I'm sorry, not Saul, Samuel, in a spirit of self-preservation, says, well, what, what am I to do here about Saul? He's gonna, he knows what I'm doing. He knows everything that's going on around here. How, how do we get around this? And God gives uh, Samuel some wisdom. And he says, well, bring a heifer and, and make it a sacrifice and then call Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what to do right there. Um, our God is a God who gives wisdom. And uh, wisdom is an absolute essential in terms of uh, our success in this life. We have to deal with people, every single one of us. And not every one of those people is um, uh, uh, sympathetic to gospel motives and operations and reasonings and all the rest. And there are times that, uh, that we need wisdom from God and we need an understanding of how to deal with people. <laughs> uh, and sometimes those people, you know, that, that are hostile towards us come from extremely un, uh, unexpected places. And one of the things that I love about the Word of God is that it teaches us about people. Uh, the number one person that the Bible teaches us about is ourselves. Um, and, 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 and as we look at the Scripture, we learn so much about ourselves and our crookedness. Jeremiah 17.9, it says that the, the heart is desperately wicked above all things, and who can know it? And when we first hear that, we're almost offended by it because we, we grow up on the premise that we're good. You know, we're special. And I remember I was five years old and one of my teachers painted on a little rock, you are special. And I took that home and I put it on my shelf and it stayed there for years. And the truth of that was burned right into me. Wow, I'm special. I'm special. I'm special. Then I got saved and God said, you're a wretch. <laughs> I like what my teacher said, God, you know, what do you see that she doesn't see, you know, and the whole thing. But once we learn that, we come to terms with the fact that we're wretched, then we allow the, the Word of God to begin to search our motives. Why do I do what I do? Why do I think this way? Why do I act this way? Why did I say that to that person? What's my motive? What's my intention? And as I allow God to reveal those things, I learn a thing or two about myself. Now, in the process of that, I also learn a thing or two about other people. Hopefully, some, sometime along the way, I get it that everybody's in it for themselves. <laughs> you know, in the thing. And what the Bible does is the Bible teaches us the primary things that drive a person's life and how to recognize what those things are. And then God can use that to give us wisdom as to how to navigate in a wise manner as we walk through the world. And what we see here is an example of God giving Samuel wisdom as to how to navigate a particular situation where there's a calamity. He knows Saul is power hungry. That's the truth of the matter. Saul will do anything to preserve his power. He sees that in Saul. And so God then gives him a way to accomplish God's will in spite of the resistance he would get from a hostile man. And so God give us wisdom. God teach us. God remove naivety from us. And the verse is this. Jesus said it. He said, be as wise as serpents, but as harmless as doves. And so understand what drives people. 
Don't be naive about it. But don't use that wisdom and understanding for your own purposes, but rather be as harmless as a dove. Use it for God's purposes. But may God give us discernment in this world. We need it. Now, notice what God then says to Samuel once the sacrifice is to ensue. God says to him, he says, anoint unto me him whom I will show you and whom I will, I will name unto you. In other words, Samuel, this is going to be a spirit-led appointment. I'm not telling you ahead of time every detail of what's going to happen when you get there. But revelation is going to be dependent upon obedience. And that's the phrase, if you want to remember anything from this morning. Revelation is dependent upon obedience. God leads one step at a time. He gives us one thing to do. And when we often say, well, God, what's going to happen next we find that there's silence. There's a, you can hear a pin drop in the room. God doesn't give us the whole picture. He gives us one part of the picture. And as we walk in that part of the picture, God then opens our understanding, once we're in that, to view what's next. Go to Ethiopia, God said to Philip. Lord, that makes no sense. That's so far from what you're doing in my life right now. I'm in Samaria. There's a revival going on. Why would you send me to Ethiopia? <laughs> nothing <laughs> Philip says God told me to go to Ethiopia Philip goes to Ethiopia and it isn't until he's walking around wandering wondering what in the world that I'm doing here that then he sees the next step and we won't get into a whole nother Bible study in developing what happened with Philip in Ethiopia but God did an incredible thing there but obedience dependent or I'm sorry revelation dependent upon obedience if God Put something in your heart or tells you to do something, just do it. You don't always have to know why God will reveal it in time. I will show you. And so the best part of this whole thing is what we see in verse 4. And it says, and Samuel did that which the Lord spake. And so Samuel obeyed the, the, the will and the command of God in this thing. And it says that he came to Bethlehem and the elders of the town trembled at his coming and they said, comest thou peaceably. So Samuel incredibly respected and revered as a prophet and as a judge. And, uh, um, and the people certainly notice when he comes into their midst. And so he said, peaceably, I am come to sacrifice unto the Lord so sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and called them to the sacrifice. And it came to pass that when they were come, that he, that is Samuel, looked upon Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Look not on his countenance, that means his demeanor or the way that he carries himself or uh, the natural qualities that, that are evident when you just observe his life, his body language and uh, you know the things that, um, that you observe upon your first impression. That's what it means when it talks about the countenance. Or, God says, the height of his stature. He was evidently tall. He was... Um, uh, framed well to fit the stature of what you would consider a king to be. And here's why God says, don't look at these things. He says, because I have refused him. He is not the one that I have called to be the king. And here's the error that you're making in all of this, Samuel, God says. For the Lord seeth not 
as a man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so what we see here is we see um, God setting forth the, the principle very clearly for you and I, recording it in Scripture, that, that the way that we look at a situation and assess it can be completely opposite of the way that God looks at a situation or a person and assesses them. Samuel, in all of this, was very quick to judge by his own understanding. He went by the countenance, the body language, uh, the stature, the fact that he looked like a king. And, and God's quick to remind um, Samuel, not, not outrightly, but definitely one of those uh, silent slaps. Um, didn't, we, didn't we do this before, Samuel? <laughs> when someone walked in the room and looked very kingly. And how did that work out for you? <laughs> you know, because everything that Samuel is attracted to in the person of Eliab is what Samuel was attracted to in Saul. And, and, and absolutely what the nation got with Saul was not what the outward appearance promised. There was a very big difference between the two things. And so God sees at, and looks at things differently. Listen carefully, men. Competence... And qualification with God comes from what's in the heart and not what's on the outside. God is primarily and exclusively concerned with what's going on on the inside in the invisible places of a man and almost nothing with what is on the outside and what is viewed or perceived by other people. That is of very little value to God at all. And what that does for every one of us is it levels the playing field. Because when it comes to the externals, the outward things in a life, there are people that have advantages and there are people that have disadvantages when it comes to those things. I heard uh, someone say one time, life is easier for good-looking people. Yeah, thank you, Captain Obvious. <laughs> we all know that to be true, even though, you know, we might deny it or deny the importance of it. We know that there's truth in it. We see that in Saul, his qualities were 100% external. His wealth, the prominence of his family and of his parentage. His father had a reputation as a mighty man. Saul was goodly, good looking and all, all of these things, all externals in the whole thing. But what was on the inside was completely worthless, and what, why that levels the playing field is because every single one of us has the potential of having a heart that is extremely useful to God. Now, we all start with Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? That's equal playing field. We come into this world wretched, every single one of us. Not one of us better than anyone else in the whole thing. But along the way, we have... A couple of opportunities. Uh, number one, and there's only two, two things, two things that, that change a heart from being wicked to being valuable in the sight of God is that we have the opportunity to be honest with our own heart. Psalm chapter 51, I forgot the verse, but David in it, after seeing something that was in his heart that was so vile and wretched, he says this to God. He says, God, you desire truth in the inward part. He doesn't say, you desire perfection in the inward part. He said, you desire truth in the inward part. What is truth? Truth is honesty. Truth is openness. Truth is transparency, vulnerability. 
That's what truth is. And so what does that mean? It means that for you and me, we have to be honest about what's in us before God. God, this is what's in me. I'm a shallow, substanceless, selfish, self-absorbed, self-consumed person, and that is manifested in so many of the things that I do. That is the truth about what's in my heart. Not what people see, not maybe the perception that I put forward, but that's the truth. And every single one of us is faced with the choice of whether or not we're going to be honest about that with God. That's step one. Then step two is, are we then willing to let God deal with what's in the heart and change it? We cannot change our heart. We can only change our mind. We can change our appearance. We can change what other people perceive based upon learned behaviors and such. But we cannot change what's really going on in the heart. Only God can change what's in the heart. And the way that that's done is when I'm honest with it and then I'm willing to let God make those changes within my life by bringing to him constantly what's in it and asking him to deal with it and change it. Confessing my sin, allowing his spirit to change me, letting his word renew my mind and renew my heart and renew my life, exposing myself to the light and the mirror of the word so that the image of Christ can be formed in me. Those are the choices that I have. And that's what God is looking for. He doesn't need anything else. He doesn't need good looks. He doesn't need money. He doesn't need education. He doesn't need politics, poise, or any of those other things. He needs none of it. What he needs is an honest and willing heart. And he can do anything with that. He can use anyone with an honest and a willing heart. Completely level playing field. I don't look on the outward appearance, God says. I look at the heart. The the Bible says that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth, looking for those whose heart is perfect towards him. The word perfect just means fully set, fully exposed, fully surrendered, perfectly set apart for him, that he might show himself strong on their behalf. That's what God's looking for, and he's looking for that right now. The eyes of the Lord are moving over this room right now, and he is searching the hearts. He is looking at every one of our hearts. And all he's looking for is someone who will be honest and willing with their own life, that he might do great things within them. And God will inexclusively use any life that fits into that characteristic. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so verse 8, it says, Then Jesse called Abinadab now. So Eliab refused. Here comes Abinadab the second. And made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this. Then Jesse made Shammah to pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this. And so one by one, Based upon their physical qualities, they're being rejected by God. And so, you know, the cream of the crop is presented first, and then um, they they slowly move down all the way through his sons uh, in descending order or whatever. And so it says in verse 10, saving us the redundance of giving us all their names, it says again, Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these, not one. And Samuel said unto Jesse, are here all your children? Are these all of them? I mean, this is all seven. I mean, I know God gave me your name. I know that I'm in the right place. I know I've got the right address in the whole thing. But none of these are the ones. And so Jesse says, well, 
There is one not particularly proud of. Didn't think it'd really even be worth bringing him here to the feast, you know, and, and things. He says, there remaineth yet the youngest. And behold, he keeps the sheep. And Samuel, I bet it doesn't say this, but I, somewhere it probably implies that Samuel smiled and said unto Jesse, send and fetch him, for we will not sit down until he come hither. What we know uh, about God is that a shepherd is extremely valuable to God. God likes shepherds. And I think Samuel knew this. And Samuel hears, oh, there's one that's with the sheep. You know, it's a small thing to man, but it's a very great value to God. And so send and fetch him. We're not going to sit down to eat until he is here also. And so he sent, verse 12, and he brought him in. Now the description of David. Now it says that he was ruddy. The word ruddy literally means that he was of a reddish complexion. So he was youthful. There was uh, something about him that was maybe a little bit rough around the edges. It's the same word that's used to describe Esau, you know, who was someone who was not favored by God, you know, um, red in that sense. But it says that he was ruddy, but withal, overall, it says, of a beautiful countenance. That is, that his, um, he had good mental faculties. He, he seemed to have his head on squarely. He could handle himself uh, just fine enough in the presence of greatness, as Samuel was there before him. And it says that he was also goodly to look to, meaning that his appearance, he had a good appearance, that there was nothing about him that was uh, misshapen. And it says that the Lord said then unto Samuel, Arise and anoint him, for this is he. So he's chosen. A little rough around the edges. Not the choice uh, son of Jesse that he, that he would think, either in the eyes of uh, men or in the eyes of Samuel even. But he's the one that God has chosen. And so verse 13, David's first anointing. The first anointing of three anointings in David's life. It says, then Samuel took the horn of oil. And it says that he anointed him in the midst of his brethren. Now pause right there, man, and don't miss this is that when God moves in a life and when God promotes a life, meaning that he takes it up and he begins working with it, he, he advances that life uh, in, in progression. He doesn't do things all at once. And I want you to notice that where the anointing begins in David's life is in the presence of his brothers. And that is just to, in, in the presence of his family. And that's where it begins. That's always where it's going to begin. Uh, God's work within us. The first place that the anointing of God is to make an impact or, or to be used in our lives is in, is in our homes, in the presence of just our family members. Uh, there's so many people that, that they get saved and they begin a relationship with God and they catch on fire and there's a zeal. And they immediately want to go to Ireland or they want to go to Germany, or they want to go uh, to, 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 you know, to, onto the mission field, or they want to uh, plant a church or start some amazing ministry. And, and, and the real question uh, for, for those people is, what's your faith look like at home? Well, what, are your, what would your kids say about your faith? How effective are you in reaching your family? You know, just, uh, just being a light and an example unto them. If your faith doesn't work at home, don't export it. <laughs> you know, and, and that's a real good rule to go by. And that's where God begins with David. 
Uh, he's anointed in the midst of his brothers. The next anointing in David's life, it will be several, several years from now, and it will be in the midst of his tribe, just a, a little bit greater expansion of influence, the tribe of Judah. And it won't be until after that, uh, a season of that, seven years of that, that then he's anointed the third time in the midst of the nation, the entire nation. And so it doesn't happen all at once. Uh, it, starts, it starts in the home. And so he anointed him in the midst of his brethren, and it says... It says, and the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now there's an incredible omission here, something that is not said in the text. And that is this, Samuel never tells David why. He never, I mean, he calls this great sacrifice he comes all the way to Bethlehem, which was far from where Samuel lived. He does this whole thing, and the express purpose and intent of it is to anoint this young man with a horn of oil. Dumps it on his head. Everyone in the, in the town is looking at this thing and seeing it. And not once does Samuel utter the words, is it not because you are to be captain over the host of the Lord? doesn't say it. He said it to Saul. He told him exactly what the anointing was. Here, doesn't say it at all. And why I think that's important is because that is the way that God primarily deals with us. When we come to him and when we surrender our lives to him and when he fills us with his spirit and his spirit comes upon our lives, he does not lay out for us. He, he can, and, and there are instances that he will, but by and large, he doesn't tell us what his great purpose is for us in the future. He says, look, I'm doing something in your life. Walk with me and discover my plan, discover my will. And that's what he does with David. And so Samuel dumps a horn of oil on the young man's head, says, there you go, lad, skipper, and leaves. <laughs> Rises up, doesn't even sit down and eat. He just goes, goes home, went back to Ramah. Now, the beginnings. The preparations begin in the heart and in the life of David. His calling is followed by the seasons of providence, an excitement in this young, newly anointed man's life. Notice in verse 14. It says, But the Spirit of the Lord now departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Wow. <laughs> you say, that's heavy. <laughs> you know, what in the world uh, does that mean? Well, first of all, understand this, that long before the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, Saul departed from the Spirit of the Lord. The apostasy of Saul happened way before the disconnect on God's end of things. God had rejected, I'm sorry, Saul had rejected God, and now God is rejecting Saul. And in its place, there's an evil spirit that's replaced in that. You say, now, what, what in the world is going on here? I mean, is, is God vengeful? Is this God saying, all right, well, you don't want me? Well, then I'll show you what you're choosing instead and, you know, kind of kind of trying to get back at him. The answer is no. That isn't the heart of God in this thing uh, at all. Um, in Lamentations chapter 3, and of course, that's the one place I put no tab, So, uh, but I, wanted, I do want to read you these verses. It's right after Jeremiah. Uh, in Lamentations chapter 3, God says this, and it's important to understand, um, especially in the light of this context of an evil spirit from the Lord. Listen to what Jeremiah says, Lamentations uh, 3, verse 31. 
It says, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, and I would think that an evil spirit from the Lord would cause grief, wouldn't you? (laughs) Yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the earth or to turn aside the right of a man before the face of the Most High or to subvert a man in his cause, the Lord approves not. In other words, when God allows something like this to happen in a person's life, he's not doing it just to afflict them or to frustrate them or or to wound them in some way. That's not the mind and the heart of God in it. Jeremiah goes on to write and he says, who is he that says, and it comes to pass when the Lord commanded it not? In other words, God is sovereign. Out of the mouth of the Most High proceedeth not evil and good. Wherefore then, why then, does a living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins? Let us search and try our ways and turn again unto the Lord. Let us lift up our heart with our hands unto the God of heaven. So, in other words, God's intent in in doing this in Saul's life is not to destroy him, but to get him to repent and turn back to God. And so, when this happens in a life that God ordains a tormentous situation to come into our lives, the reason for it is so that we'll turn back to God. That's his intention. Paul said concerning a sinning brother in the New Testament that he is to be turned over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the soul might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, if a man is filled with the fruit of his own ways, the evil of it, it will bring him back to his knees and to a saving knowledge of the Lord. And so God sends an evil spirit for the intent of fixing Saul. Uh, However, it doesn't work. Saul doesn't give himself uh, back to the things of God. But God uses this in his life nevertheless. And so verse 15, it says, And so Saul's servants said unto him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God troubles you. Let our Lord now command your servants, which are before you, to seek out a man who is a cunning player on a harp, And it shall come to pass when the evil spirit from God is upon you that he shall play with his hand and you shall be well. And Saul said unto his servants, provide me now a man that can play well and bring him to me. Then answered one of the servants and said, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, that is cunning and playing He's a great musician and a mighty valiant man. That is, he is a soldier and a man of war. Or that's a soldier. The valiant man is that he's strong. Also, prudent in matters. That is, he's wise and a comely person. He's pleasant to be around. He's easy to be with. And the Lord is with him. And so uh, what we see here is we see two things in, in this. Number one is we see providence taking place. We see that God is now going to bring David into a place within the palace and God is going to use providence as his means of doing that. What is providence? Even though he still loves one guy, he still use him or 
No, not quite. Pro- providence is God working through normal circumstances to bring about his will. And, and the difference is the miraculous. That's the contrast. The miraculous is God supernaturally bending human law uh, to, to work his purposes. Providence is God using natural purposes to bring forth his will. And so what happens here is that someone who knew who David was and had seen him and observed him and who was also serving in Saul's palace brings a reference concerning David to Saul on his behalf. And here's what I would say concerning this. Men, you never know who is watching you at a given time. And we see this over and over again throughout the scriptures. The Bible says that God sees. In Colossians, it says, when you work, don't work with eye service as unto men, but work with fervency of heart, serving the Lord, who sees all things and will reward you openly. The Bible says no matter what you do, do it with all your heart, because you don't know who's watching. When, uh, when um, Solomon, the richest, greatest king that ever was, needed a man, it says that he beheld and he saw that there was, I forgot the guy's name, but, but he was one of the captains over the tribe of Joseph. And it says that when Solomon saw him, that he was an industrious man, he put him over a large sector of his kingdom. And so this man, not even knowing that he was being observed by the king himself, because he worked diligently with all his heart and that which he did, he was selected for an incredible opportunity. And here we see that David uh, is being seen. Now, I want you to notice the qualities that are existent in David already at this point. Six things that it says there. Cunning and playing. That is, that he is a musician. He's musical. Um, it says also that he's a mighty and valiant man. Uh, also, that he is... Um, uh, a a strong man. He's a soldier. He's wise. He's well-kept and he's godly. And the common denominator in all these things is that they are inward traits. There's an inwardness to them. They're not external things that are observed, but rather they're they're things. Now, what this means is that God has already been at work within this young man's life. God has been at at work in his life. However, God's not done (laughs) because we're going to see that there's a whole lot more work to do. And so it says in verse 19, Wherefore Saul sent messengers unto Jesse and said, Send me David your son, which is with the sheep. And Jesse took an ass laden with bread and he took a bottle of wine and a kid and he sent them by David unto his, uh, his son unto Saul. And David came to Saul and stood before him and he loved him greatly. David loved Saul greatly. There was an esteem, there was a respect, there was a love. And it says that he became his armor bearer. So David's first job in the ministry is that he is an armor bearer in Saul's uh, military, meaning that he would work right alongside the king um, and carry his weapons, his, his shield and his armor. And so Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David, I pray thee, stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And it came to pass that when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, that David took a harp and played with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit 
departed from him. And so uh, God using David now in his musical capacities and David is beginning um, to grow in this place, in this position there within the palace, God bringing him in. Now, if I put myself in David's shoes for, for just one moment, I've got it all figured out. Wow, God, you are so incredibly good and so wise and so loving. You know, you, here you've got me in the palace, and in just a couple of days, God, now that I'm here, Saul's going to get hit with an arrow, and maybe I, maybe, God, maybe I'll be the next king. But here I am, I'm already in, I'm learning the ways, I've got my foot in the door, networking and the whole thing. Wow, I've got it all figured out. Now I'm a worship leader, and I'm leading worship in the palace, and in a few days I'm going to be made an elder. You know, because obviously I possess the wisdom of God and I'll be one of Saul's most reliable counselors in the whole thing, sitting at his table. And then I'll be an assistant king, assistant pastor or whatever, you know. And then and then God, in your time, there it is. I'll, I'll be the CEO of the nation. And, you know, this is so, God, you are so good. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that the Lord's ways are not as man's ways. God says, my ways are not your ways, neither are my thoughts your thoughts, saith the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are my ways above your ways, and my thoughts past finding out. Listen, men, if you think you can figure out how God's going to do it in your life, you're wrong. (laughs) because God is never going to do things or bring things about in the way that you or I think. He is working in the invisible ways and in the invisible realms to bring things about in the right way at the right time for the right reason and in a way that they last. And so what does that mean for you and me? It means that the position of our heart is to be one of continual surrender and continual following and fellowship with God. One of the things that I notice uh, in this chapter, and it's a great strength that David had, and it's a great example to you and I, is that David was very much a man who was yielded to whatever it was that God wanted to do within his life. He was not a uh, um, self-made man. He wasn't ambitious in in, in the uh, sense that that a man like Saul was. You know what impresses me greatly about David in in this chapter and about this man David and his life? Uh, And it would be the thing I'd leave you with this morning. And that is what David did after he was anointed by Saul uh, or Samuel. Samuel pours the horn of oil on his head, leaves town. And you know what David did next? He He went right back into the field. And he kept on watching the sheep that God had uh, entrusted to his hand. He, he did exactly the next day what he had done the previous day. The only thing that had changed within his life is that the Spirit of God had come upon him. And, and that he, he had maybe a little bit more of a, a sense of purpose. That God had a plan and something that he was going to do within his life. Everything else stayed exactly the same. And what he did is he went into the field and he waited on the timing of God to bring things about the way God wanted. And it happened, didn't it? And in the next chapter, it's going to happen again. David's job in the palace is going to prove temporary. And he's going to go home. And guess what he's going to do when he gets there? He's going to go out in the field and he's going to keep the sheep until the next part of God's plan begins to unfold within his life. Men, beware of wanderlust. 
Many a calling, many of plans of God in a life have been subverted, delayed, or destroyed because of simple lack of patience, not waiting on God to unfold things in his time. The best thing for you and for me is if God can find us where he left us when he last dealt with us. God's going to go looking for David at Jesse's house a couple of months, maybe a year after Samuel departed. What if David left? What if David said, you know, Dad, I just got to get closer to things. Let me move to Ramah and spend some time with Samuel, learning the ways of God. This makes sense, doesn't it? It would be a wise thing for a young man to do. God, let me move closer to the palace. Let me get near Saul. That wasn't where God went looking for him. So what does that mean for you and I? What do you have planned for tomorrow? What do you have planned for today? What do you have planned for Monday? Do it. And do it with all your heart. Surrender your life completely to God. Give yourself to his purposes and his will for you. Hear his voice say, my eyes are looking for hearts that are set towards me and I will do incredible things with you that you could never know. And then wait on him to bring it about within your life. And understand, men, every calling, every bit of fruit that comes out of our life, there's going to be a crucible and a preparation and a refining. Because we come into this world with a whole lot of things that need to be removed. And the things that God puts in need to be refined. Do you see the qualities of David? I mean, look at his resume here as a young man. His resume as a young man is way better than mine at this stage of my life. And yet God sees there's a whole lot more work to be done. Would to God that we don't stop, but that we say, God, keep moving in my life. Keep refining. Keep purifying. Keep disciplining. Keep growing me. Keep forming Christ in me. And the result of that is that there will be fruit upon fruit upon fruit upon fruit, not stopping.